I believe a lot in sort of secure defaults and using secure defaults to eliminate bug classes. And eliminating bug classes is important, you know, because we talked about sort of how it can have compounding effects for your AppSec team and also about how you can use these to eliminate the OS top 10. But essentially using secure defaults can be pretty effective because you're really just compounding something that might take a long time and a long process into a binary a question of, oh, is this person using our secure default or not? And that just becomes a easier question to answer. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hackers of all ages, welcome to the future of application security, a podcast dedicated to the innovative leaders looking to build out modern AppSec programs. I'm your guest host, Eric Sheridan, Chief Innovation Officer at Tromso. In this podcast, we meet with industry leaders to talk about their boots on the ground experience building out these modern AppSec programs so we can all learn from their experience. With that said, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Future of Application Security, where I'm going to chat with speakers at the Developers and Security Our Friends Day, a free full-day training event for developers and security professionals in the areas of application, product, and cloud security. I have with me Colleen Dye, Senior Security Researcher at SEMGRAP. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, yeah, anytime I, I do any of these interviews, I get a little bit of a background around the person I interviewed. And there was a line that caught my eye. It said, uh, you know, strong advocate for integration of systems engineering, Vim, and static analysis. Where did Vim come from? <laughs> There's a huge argument in the company and I think a lot of other companies about Vim versus Emacs. And it's been persistent and ongoing. And I just have to, you know, stand my ground. <laughs> So, um, okay, what's your honest opinion of people who use Visual Studio Code? You know, they can do whatever they want. <laughs> you know, I've used Visual Studio Code a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm a fan in some of the aspects, but also just Vim has stuck with me forever. And the shortcuts that I know for Vim are just the shortcuts that I want to use nowadays. Yeah, I keep wanting to learn Vim, but like um, I do software development, and, but like all the various shortcuts, I, I can't. I, there's there's a learning curve, right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. I've heard the learning curve is actually worse for Emacs too. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I heard you can build an entire operating system in Emacs. <laughs> so. That's what the pros or the pro Emacs people will tell you. Yeah, yeah. What's it? Uh, GNU Linux slash Emacs. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, can you tell us a little bit of a background about yourself and what you do? Yeah, definitely. I'm currently a senior security researcher at SEMGREP, and I work on the pro engine side of it. So this is interfile analysis, like type inference, deeper analysis. So I just work on the security research side of finding, you know, repositories that are vulnerable to specific application security vulnerabilities, more like cross-site scripting, SQL injection, et cetera, and help build benchmarks to sort of measure how well our stack analysis tool is doing in comparison to the older generations like Coverity, Fortify, Sneak, et cetera, and sort of help guide the development of the engine and make sure that we're catching specific language idiosyncrasies, you know, like Java's getters and setters, you know, C++ stuff, um, et cetera. Oh, that's cool. So one of the things you mentioned was type inferencing. Like, why is that important for static analysis? 
So as you know, psychoanalysis deals with a lot of false positives and effective false positives where developers just don't want to fix the issues that you've sort of surfaced. And type inference can help and deeper inference, things like that can also help reduce false positives. So for instance, if there's like user input that flows into this maybe like create query or execute query statements, and it's of type int or of type bool, you don't care about that. So with type inference, you can just filter that out and say, this is this is not important. So uh, why would I not care if it's like an integer or a Boolean or yeah. SQL injection, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. So ultimately, usually when we're caring about things that flow into, you know, like create query, query statements, we usually care about strings. Like if you can put in a semicolon or, you know, a quotation mark into that string, then that's something that we're aware of. But if it's just like a Boolean true or false, it's usually not that important. Yeah. So presumably if you try and parse that string into an integer, somebody's going to throw an error. So like you, exactly. that doesn't actually work. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And um, so there's another thing you said, you mentioned false positives and I think you said effective false mm -hmm. positives. Can you elaborate a little more? What is that effective false positive? Yeah. Yeah. So false positives are mostly for a security person. So this perspective of something that's actually not vulnerable codes, but maybe your tool flags it as vulnerable. I would say effective false positives are more of the developer perspective and it's probably something a lot of security people care about more. It's whatever a developer is willing to fix. So ultimately, if your tool flags things that are not false positives, but developers aren't willing to fix them, it doesn't really matter, right? Because those true positives aren't being fixed ultimately. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if like people are not acting on the data, then, you know, it's... So I guess, why would a developer choose not to fix it? Like, well, how does that come up? That's also a great question. I think there's a variety of reasons. And a lot of it is that if there's a finding, a lot of developers find maybe the remediation advice to not be sufficient. So they'll say, this is, I don't understand why this is vulnerable, or I don't understand how to actually fix this, or maybe the fix is too complex. So honestly, like a stack analysis, the goal is to have a stack analysis tool that automatically fixes things for developers. But that's also sort of a hard problem. Yeah, well, it's a hard problem because you know, they're probably not going to be excited about the idea of someone else's code coming into the code that they maintain. And what if, but what if that breaks something, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the thought a developer has when they hear, hey, look, we'll fix this for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of, you know, rules and checks that stack analysis engines do have are very general and generic. And perhaps when you're trying to fix something and have remediation advice for it, you want something that's more custom or company specific. Maybe have like a custom framework for a specific vulnerability that you want to have put in as a fix instead of whatever this generic thing is. Okay, interesting. So I actually got a chance to watch your talk earlier today and you were talking about how I think you, used the, you referenced the OWASP top 10 and how, you know, from one version to the other, not a whole lot has changed. Um, I think in like the four-year span mm -hmm. between the two. Why do you think that is? I think there's a there's a variety of reasons. I think some things have changed. For instance, CSRF has, we've gotten a lot better at CSRF, but ultimately we haven't done a really, really good job of remediating a lot of the OWASP top 10. I think partly is because a lot of security companies are really focused on individual bug finding. Yeah. So targeting specific bugs, like doing a lot of pen tests, bug bounties, and not really focusing on eliminating specific vulnerability classes in general. And doing bug, you know, bug whack-a-mole finding individual bugs ultimately just results in that specific bug being eliminated. It doesn't result in these vulnerability classes being eliminated in your code. Interesting. So I like that idea of being able to 
like remediate a specific class of vulnerability. Like, I love that concept. Can you talk a little bit more about that and sort of how you see that happen? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's like usual insecurity. It's good in practice, good in theory and harder in practice. Um, <laughs> but I believe a lot in sort of secure defaults and using secure defaults to eliminate bug classes. And eliminating bug classes is important, you know, because we talked about sort of how it can have compounding effects for your AppSec team and also about how you can use these to eliminate the OS top 10. But essentially using secure defaults can be pretty effective because you're really just compounding something that might take a long time and a long process into a binary a question of, oh, is this person using our secure default or not? And that just becomes an easier question to answer. Yeah, probably helps the scalability too, right? Because mm -hmm. rather than trying to, you know, identify infinite number of paths or patterns, you're focused on maybe a handful more clearly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just simplifies everything down, and the simpler things are, the the better. Yeah, yeah. So I I love static analysis. I actually you know did a lot of work on it in my past, and so I I, I think uh, one of the the things that SAST has faced um, in general over the years is a bit of a backlash due to the high number of false positives mm -hmm. from from years prior. What sort of research or efforts are you seeing that are helping reduce false positives? We talked about type inferencing. Is there something mm -hmm. else that, uh, or anything else that you're, you're seeing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's sort of the problem for all stack analysis tools and maybe, you know, like DAS too. There's a few like deeper program analysis techniques to eliminate false positives. But I also think that there's a lot that can be done in terms of rule writing and also check writing that can reduce your false positives. So for one, focusing on custom rules and making sure that your checks are really dedicated to a specific business logic or to your specific coding practices really, really helps reduce false positives. And I guess like working at SEMGRAB, what we've seen over and over again is that your custom rules are the ones that developers fix. Interesting. Yeah, because ultimately, even if we try our best as security researchers to write rules to, you know, like eliminate cross-site scripting in your organization, different organizations just do things differently. So one org's code doesn't look like another org's. And the best way to really remediate a certain vulnerability in your organization is to have something custom for it. Okay. Uh, is there an example of one that you could provide? Obviously, keeping the customer's name out of it. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's been cases where customers have had like specific cross-site scripting wrapper yeah. that they use to prevent cross-site scripting. And they would like check whether someone's not using that wrapper whenever they're passing something into a template. And that okay. is something that they found pretty effective. That's cool. And so like you're verifying that a positive practice is actually happening as opposed to an infinite number of negatives, which mm -hmm. theoretically, and it almost sounds like in practice, people are able to do more with that. They're able to act on that, mm -hmm. which is cool. So, you know, in rolling out, uh, you know, static analysis and doing the research, I mean, a key part of, the, of what I heard you about your, your talk was, you know, the relationship between development and security and some sort of partnership thereof. Like, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's historically developers in security have not had the best relationship, um, as we all know. And ultimately, I think it's, you know, it's a problem of we have different goals where developers are just trying to push features and then security is trying to make sure the code is secure. And these goals can sometimes exist in opposition in our minds. So I think ultimately this worldview of our goals being in opposition is not useful to the ultimate goal of creating secure software. And good software is secure software. So developers 
most of them, I think, know this and want to write good software. So if we're able to make sure that our goals are aligned, that, you know, security isn't blocking developers or blocking feature releases, but also keeping that in mind, I think it it really helps move forward the conversation of security instead of making it blocking within this community of developers and security people. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation where a security team tried to, you know, configure and install some tool, any tool, and immediately block on day one? Like, and if so, like, what you can probably all guess where I'm going with this. What pain did that cause? <laughs> yeah, I've seen it done, um, you know, maybe like even installing some grub in different organizations. The settings as blocking, it's just been explosive. It's no developers can really push through their codes. It's just like it creates an intense opposition in developers of security practices because they can't do their jobs. And we're not helping further both of our goals. We're just, you know, taking a step forward in the security direction and then taking a step back in the developer's, you know, goal addition. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, you know, developers, you talk about, uh, you know, sort of different teams with different responsibilities, different objectives. A lot of engineering teams are, are measured based on their ability to like deploy software, or commit software. And as I say that, I reminded one time I spoke with a software engineer and they said, they're point blank. They're like, look, if this is not a ticket in my ticketing system, I'm not doing it. And so that was a pretty clear message that I received. Have you received any kind of like clear message like that from engineering teams? And if so, like, what are your thoughts on how to work with an, an environment like that or a culture like that? Yeah, I think that's a problem that a lot of security people do face. And there's this silo of engineering and security departments. And sort of the only way we can interact with engineers sometimes is by like Jira tickets, um, <laughs> which is, I think, ridiculous and doesn't sort of help us in our ultimate goal. But I think a lot of this has to start from the ground up. If we want to build good relationships with engineering teams, you have to talk to the engineers. You have to sort of make sure that you have influence on some of the people in the engineering team if your team is siloed from the inch department and really just, I think, like make friends with them. I think one one thing that is really interesting is, you know, if someone does file a Jira ticket and they do a good job of accomplishing what you ask them to, to really make sure to take the time and to shout them out, to compliment them. And that goes sort of far in terms of making sure that they're getting the recognition they, they deserve. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everybody wants to be recognized for the hard work they're doing. So taking the time to do that is probably going to go a long way. Yeah, exactly. Instead of sort of this culture of fear and, oh, you did this wrong. It's instead of, uh, we want to have a culture of making sure that people are recognized, that they feel happy when they complete something that's a security ask, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, going back to my previous comment about, you know, just sticking any tool in and blocking from day one, obviously that's, that's going to cause issues that there's right. scalability challenges there. What are your thoughts on like how to better scale out AppSec programs or security testing and organizations that are really measured on how frequently to deploy and update the production? Yeah, I think the first step when using something like a SaaS tool or a scanner is to test it yourself to see what issues come up on your codes, like when you're doing a POC of these static analysis tools to make sure that you're doing the POC on your own code and seeing what alerts are coming up. Okay. And that gives you a, sort of a good idea of what developers might see. And I think maybe the first step of integrating this tool into your pipeline is to make sure to set it in CI/CD first as like maybe just commenting or okay. if something's like lower criticality, make sure to just 
alert your security team instead of even commenting. So having these tiers of checks and making sure that the ones that are less critical just alert the security team or don't do anything, I think is is really important. All right, cool. Is there a particular type of vulnerability you see developers struggle with the most when it comes to like remediation or fixing it? That's a good question. I think so. I can only really speak on the experience of the things that SaaS can catch well, um, which doesn't include a lot of authorization bugs or like trust boundary things or IDOR stuff. But we, I think we struggle a lot with cross-site scripting and the SaaS will struggles with this and also developers struggle with this because in applications and yeah, applications like Spring, for instance, the trace for a cross-site scripting vulnerability can be large. Like the call stack is huge. So having to having to like realize how to fix this can be complicated. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, what's what's the significance of the trace? Like, you know, you mentioned Spring Boots and, you know, XSS. Like why is that trace important? Yeah, I think it's the trace is important to just see whether something's like a false positive or not. And ultimately if people don't think it's vulnerable. They don't really want to fix it still. Yeah. So having this trace of some user input is coming in and then it goes into like something else. And you know how Java call stacks are. Um, (laughs) They're actually ridiculous. Just like seeing that and having, I guess, an idea of of that confuses people. It's, It's very hard to process. And I think there's just a lot of different ways to remediate cross-site scripting. So people are confused about what the best way is or what the best practice in their company is. So that's also difficult. Okay. Are you seeing any challenges related like single page applications, you know, where the apps like dynamically updating in the DOM as opposed to server-side rendering? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't really have too much experience on what the two opposing sides face. Yeah. yeah so can't really answer that. Fair enough. So like... um yeah, it's interesting because like with single page applications, like they have a lot of built-in defenses these days. And it's, it goes back to one of the key themes you had earlier, which I'm hoping you can only, uh, expand upon a little bit, like secure defaults. Mm-hmm. So like these frameworks have secure defaults, which are important. Can you talk a little bit more about like the secure defaults that uh, you're preaching about your, with your customers and sort of how they're adopting it? Yeah, definitely. So I think secure defaults is, you know, you can see them in cases where People are using React and they want to ban like dangerously set in their HTML. You can see a lot of this in parameterizing SQL queries and things like that. Ultimately, I still think secure defaults is, you know, easier in theory, harder in practice. What we get a lot is that a lot of security and SaaS tools will alert a lot because people have been using like dangerously set in their HTML and, you know, (laughs) dangerous functions since forever. So you get a lot of alerts at first and it's it can be overwhelming. So having to get through that first initial stage of maybe doing automate automatic triage or if writing a tool to do triage for you because manual triage at that point is not helpful. Yeah. It's a barrier to entry. And that's sort of what we see. Okay. Very cool. Well I appreciate your time. I have one more question for you. What got you into security? Was there like some event that happened in your life where you're like, yeah, I need to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I would say that I was always interested in security. So my background is sort of like systems engineering and, you know, C, C++ coding things, um, operating systems, compilers, etc. And 
I think a lot of it is interesting because people don't talk about security in those systems enough. Um, (laughs) And only lately, you know, with the development of Rust, people trying to write embedded systems in Rust and things like that, have we really gotten into that discussion. So I think it's like, it's a very fascinating field to me. And I think it's, it's important to protect people's data ultimately. Uh, well, I'd love to ask you more questions because you brought up Rust. I love Rust. But in any event, I appreciate, Colleen, I appreciate your time. This is awesome. To everybody else out there, thanks for your time, and uh, we'll call it a wrap. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.